0: 008, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. So Eric Bilstead, we're, we're waiting. The uh, the Bucks are going to have their press conference announcing, uh, hiring, and introducing mm-hmm. the new coach to the media. They're, they're doing that. I'm, we're watching the video feed of this. Uh, are, are those like the sports writers and stuff that they're making wear hard hats and the orange construction So thing?
1: they're holding this in the new arena, and yeah. whenever anyone goes in there, I've been in there, whenever you go in, you have to wear the vest and you have to wear a helmet. That's just safety protocol. So, yeah, we're seeing some of the press contingents and they are wearing the vest and the helmet i would assume that means the coach will be wearing the vest and the helmet too when he's introduced huh
0: interesting and they by the way they have the scoreboard this is in the concourse so you can see the arena behind which is the backdrop um, which is so no yeah. it's, it's a very cool backdrop i'm just wondering <laughs> if yeah. they're making everybody put on the hard hats and the orange things and it sounds like a party too by the way that's what they're pumping right now okay well, as soon as it was supposed <laughs> to start at 12 o'clock, as soon as it starts, we will uh, at least, I'm not sure we're going to carry the entire thing, but we'll carry some of it as the Bucks introduce their coach um, a little bit later on in the program. Matter of fact, we had to, um, my bad, we had to change our, our text word. Um, it's a, Steve scafiti has been doing the salute to service thing for the last couple of weeks and it's wrapping up this week. You know, incredibly, incredibly compelling stories that underscore how difficult a job that. Um, whether it's firefighters or people in law enforcement have, there, there's a real interesting story that we're going to be talking about during the 1 o'clock hour of the program. It, it's a story about a police officer in South Carolina who makes what you would describe as a routine traffic stop, pulls over a car because the tar- car made a left turn without giving a, a signal, and then... Apparently what happens is the person who was stopped who happened to be African American goes home and very prominent member of the community makes all sorts of allegations about the police officer this was racial profiling and the person accused us of drug dealing and my grand my my wife and my grandchildren in their car and they were cowering in fear and we were afraid we were going to be shot and this is terrible posts all this stuff up there and essentially calls this uh, trooper this officer that this racist And, you know, makes these claims. Well, what the man in the car did not realize is that the officer had a body camera on. And the entire contact, all three and a half minutes, is caught on the body camera. And apparently what the claims were versus what reality was are quite different. If you want to see the story and you want to see the body camera video that describes and shows you exactly what happened between the two, if you text me the word police, P-O-L-I-C-E, text me the word police to 414-799-1620, that's the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, I will send you a link to the story we are going to be discussing that during the one o'clock hour of the programme. Tell you what again, we're going to kick off with the Bucks introductory press conference of the new coach. Uh, we'll be back with that in just a moment. Let's take an early break. It's twelve twelve. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's twelve fourteen, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The Bucks Press Conference is just beginning. Let's go to it.
2: And on NBA TV. As you can see, for those of you who have been here recently, there is still great progress as we progress. Through the next couple of months and the opening of this first class facility and the home of the Bucks. We're very anxious for all of Milwaukee and Wisconsin to enjoy and experience the new home of Milwaukee Bucks basketball. The building signifies a new era in Bucks basketball, and also today's announcement signifies that new era. With more on that, it is my pleasure to turn it over to Bucks General Manager, John Horse.
1: Thanks, Jim. Thank you all for being here. Good afternoon. Uh, special thank you to all the construction workers that are working on this facility for being here. We really appreciate that. Um, you know, this is my honor and pleasure and, and genuinely excited to introduce uh, Coach Mike Budenhoser uh, to the Milwaukee Bucks organization as our head coach. You know, Bud is um, has a career of building uh, successful franchises. Bud has proven himself as a teacher and a leader in developing players. He's had tremendous success in the Spurs organization and then taking over his own franchise um, in the success that he had with the Atlanta Hawks organization. And for those reasons and many more, uh, we know he's going to be a great fit for us, and we're really excited to have him here today.
3: Thank you, John. Um, you know, I want to start with some thank yous. Uh, thank you to my family, to my kids, uh, Libby, who's here today, um, Will and Hannah and John, who are back in Texas, uh, my girlfriend Melissa here, um, you know, my parents, my dad's a coach, so uh, he's pretty excited about what I get to do every day. Um, and then, you know, as John just mentioned, I, I would like to, um, a big thank you to the players uh, over the last five years and all the people that have, you know, um, put me in a position and given me the support uh, to be sitting here and be named the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks today. i um, very appreciative of them. Uh, very, very appreciative of, you know, John. Uh, the Milwaukee ownership, you know, Wes and Mark and Jamie, uh, I couldn't be more excited about this opportunity. Um, the fit uh, is, to me, uh, what this is about. When I looked at the ownership and I looked at the GM and the roster that we have uh, here in Milwaukee, all the great things that are happening around the community, the timing, um and taking the Milwaukee Bucks to the next level. Uh, I couldn't... uh, I feel very fortunate to be put in this position and and given a a leadership uh, role and working with the entire roster, with the front office, with ownership. I can't wait to take us to the next level in Milwaukee. Thank you.
2: Thank you, John. Mike, thank you. Congratulations and welcome to Milwaukee. We have a couple of players here. Chris Middleton and Marshall Plumley are joining us. Uh, they're representing the uh, current group of players. Hello, guys. Appreciate it. Time now for questions from the media. We will follow the normal procedure. Please uh, wait for a microphone. You can raise your hand to receive the microphone. Please identify yourself and your news outlet before asking the question. Uh, Coach uh, Doug Russell at WTMJ Radio. First question. The breakfast with Giannis and Chris. What was discussed, and what made you feel like this was going to be the best fit for you?
3: Do they like berries or bacon or ham? What do they want with their breakfasts? Um, no, I mean it was it was a great opportunity to uh, to sit and visit with with both Chris and Giannis, and um, you know just kind of talk basketball, talk a little bit about families, life, uh, and I think it was just such a, a smart and important part of the process. Uh, you know, I think how important um, both players are to to us. You know, in the short term, and the long term, as a coach, you're only as good as your players. Uh, and so, I think to connect with them um, on a lot of different levels, uh, it was important that morning. It's important going forward. Um, it's important to connect with really our entire roster. So, um, I thoroughly enjoyed it and um, look forward to. I don't know about a lot of breakfasts, probably, um, but maybe dinners and lunches and getting to know, uh, you know, all of them a lot better as we go forward.
0: I'm Matt Velasquez, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Uh, you know, what's it like to, to be here in this moment, you know, in this facility, you know, getting ready for uh, a season in which, you know, the Bucks are obviously hoping to to reach new levels and continue their growth, you know, both within, you know, with the building, the community, and, of course, on the court.
3: Yeah, this to be in this moment, to be here, um, you know, I talked about fit and timing. I I think uh, I feel incredibly fortunate to be put in this position by John and ownership. And um, it's just, it feels, uh, you know, since, uh, you know, the moment I think we all kind of said yes to each other, uh, nothing's felt more right. And. Um, I think there's a genuine excitement about where we can go. Um, I think a genuine understanding of how much work we have to put in to get there and the focus on getting better every day um, individually and collectively. But uh, to be in this moment, to be in front of you guys, to be here with, with John and the players and everybody, um, and to think about the future of this organization, I, I genuinely just I think I'm in the best place uh, in the league, and I couldn't be more excited.
4: Mike, uh, Gary, Demata, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. You've got a track record of, of team building, building teams. What uh, what are the keys to unlocking potential in young players?
3: Well, you know, I think unlocking the potential, in, in w- whether it be young players or, you know, even older players, I think this still can grow and get better. You know, I think there's a daily approach that, you know, our players and our staff and everybody uh, with the organization will see from, you know, I guess starting with me, uh, but, there's a, an approach to player development that's it's as simple as just giving it time every day, um, but then I think there's building confidence in them, giving them opportunities, um, teaching, holding them accountable. Um, all of those things that are you know, just really part of coaching, but I think if you're going to unlock potential and you're going to take teams and players to the next level, uh, which we hope to do here, um, those things become critical, just the day-to-day attention, um, holding them accountable giving them confidence, giving them freedom. Um,
5: You know, those are some of the things. Mike, it's Lance Allen from WTMJ-TV. From your experience with the Spurs or the level that you got the Atlanta organization, kind of a a follow-up on that is what are the keys or what do you feel are the necessary ingredients to get a team to win a championship, to win a division, to win titles like what this organization wants to do?
3: Well, I think the, you know, the thing that, Um, We're always looking for, I think John and I have talked about it, and and that's competitors. I think uh, it always starts with having great competitors um, on your team, in your front office, on your coaching staff, that probably the number one characteristic that's uh, if you want to win championships, you've got to be great competitors. Uh, It's got to come naturally. Um, I think that's something that whether it be San Antonio or Atlanta or You're watching the teams play that are still alive in the playoffs, that competitive spirit that runs through them. Um, I think there's an unselfishness uh, that's critical to winning at a high level and an unselfishness that, you know, starts with your best player. And, you know, we're lucky to have a Giannis who will do anything to win and a Chris Middleton that will do anything to win. And when you have, um, you know, your best players that, that are true competitors and that are truly unselfish and care more about the team than they do themselves, You know, those are a couple of the big, you know, kind of foundational blocks to winning championships and doing things that are special.
0: Eric, Naomi, ESPN Milwaukee. Mike, when you look at Giannis, he
2: might be the greatest singular talent that you'll get to be head coach for. How do you try to leverage his skills, and what kind of exciting opportunity is that for you?
3: Well, yeah, you know, on the the back end of the question, it's, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be excited about coming to Milwaukee, but there's no doubt Giannis is uh, is one of, uh, you know, He's so important to our success. I think he embraces, you know, um, his leadership role and how he needs to grow and improve and, and get better along with all the rest of us. So the excitement level is through the roof. Um, you know, and I think, you know, how, we're, how we can use and, and, you know, implement him defensively and offensively, you know, it started some at breakfast and it will probably continue down in the weight room, you know, t- today and tomorrow and the next day and those conversations – you know, I look forward to having with Giannis and, and listening to Giannis too. You know, I think he's a smart player at 23. I think he has an IQ and an understanding of the game. And, um, I think together he and I will, uh, we'll probably push each other, but I look forward to pushing him. And, um, I think, you know, he, he believes it and I believe it. He, he's going to get a lot better as we watch him over the years.
5: Hi, Coach Stephanie Sutton, WISN TV here in Milwaukee. I have two questions. First of all, have you ever been to a press conference like this in all your years in the NBA? No. <laughs> what do you think of all the hard hats?
3: Yeah, can they, uh, it's 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 impressive that they got all of you guys to put them on. John and I joked, "Do we have to wear them?" And we thought we were pretty critical to this press conference, and maybe we could get away without wearing them. So. Yeah, it's uh, pretty impressive. Everybody's got their uh, their hard huts and uh, safety vests, and um, I won't miss any of you for sure.
5: <laughs> and of all the things that you weighed in, your decision in coming to Milwaukee, what was the one thing that truly convinced you to take this job here?
3: I think the fit, the fit here um, just really felt right, uh, whether it's with John, I think the interview and the day we had together with his staff, uh, the time with ownership and, and visiting with them and getting a sense for how important winning is to them, and then sitting and visiting with, with Giannis and Chris uh, at a breakfast. And the longer the process went on, the greater the fit felt. And, you know, when you're building a team, um, I've been a part of building, you know, a lot of great championship teams in San Antonio, a lot of success in uh, in Atlanta over the last five years, and lots of times fit is just, you know, it's almost more important than anything. And, um, you know, how do people fit together on the court? How do people fit together in the front office and a coaching staff and ownership? I just, uh, that's became the overwhelming feeling that this was a great fit for me and uh, and my coaching staff that I'm excited about bringing and working with these players um, couldn't be, you know, I, I just think that there's so much potential here.
2: Coach, Greg Matzik from WTMJ Radio. A question for you and for, for you, John, as well. Uh you had been the president of basketball operations at one point with Atlanta. I'm the guy in the hard hat, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, how important is that opportunity to to build, a with John, a collaborative roster, given your experience level that goes far beyond just coaching? W- was that an aspect of this job that you find uh, appealing? And then, John, it, you, to have a guy like that with that level on his resume, uh, how much did that really stand out to you?
1: Yeah, I'll go first. I, I think for me, um, anyone who's – worked with me so far, and any of our staff would tell you that uh, being collaborative and having our, our pillars of our franchise work together on everything and, and share ideas and beat things up and go back and forth, and then ultimately be responsible for making decisions in your area that, you, that you're hired to have, um, that's really important. And, and we talked a lot about that during our interview process. Um, there's no doubt you know, Bud has been with the San Antonio Spurs. They've done a great job of drafting. They've done a great job finding talent on the margins. They've built great organizational culture. And, and just as we talked about before, leveraging resources, leveraging experiences is, is everything. This is not an I game. This is not a me game. This is a we game. And to have someone with his experience and his knowledge to help us and support us is tremendous.
3: Yeah, and, you know, what John just said I felt from, you know, the first time we started visiting and and talking about, you know, how how we see the Bucs and, you know, their perspective and what they've observed and and learned over the years, and, you know, it's different when you're on the sideline or you're coaching against them, but, you know, for me, I I think there's been a real, a great opportunity for me to, to be focused on coaching and, to really make that my, uh, you know, my focus, but to be somewhere where um, I think, you know, your, your thoughts and your experiences and your observations on on how to build a, a great championship-type level team are appreciated and welcomed and valued, and to have great debate, and you know, this morning we're already having, you know, great, great conversations about what we need to do with our players and put them in the best position, and. When when everybody's working well together, that's when great things happen. And you know, I think from the from like I said, the very first meeting with John and his group, all the way through the process, it just felt like a place where I think it would be a good fit for me, and they would value what I bring, and and also you know allow me to focus on coaching, which is the most important thing I'm here to do. Um, And so it's uh, I, I look forward to that whole process of building a team. Um, but I, I know where where my focus is and where John's is and how we can help each other, and I'm excited about that.
0: You've been listening to the introductory press conference, Milwaukee Bucks, of course, have hired a new coach, and uh, new head coach talks about what, what a good fit he thinks it is, and, of course, you have somebody with extensive experience. I think it's an actual, absolutely, it was a brilliant choice by the Bucks, given where they are at this particular time. Let's take a quick break. It's twelve twenty eight. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 12.36, Jeff Recker, WTMJ. Let's get started. Once again, if you want to see this uh, this encounter, it runs about four minutes. It's between a police officer and a very prominent member of it, the story comes out of South Carolina, the community, and the police officer who was accused of being racist, um, we'll, we'll send you the link. You can text me the word police, P-O-L-I-C-E, to 414-799-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We will discuss that sometime during the one o'clock hour of the program. All right. Um, while I was out of town, uh, you had another one of these horrible stories, this time a shooting in a small Texas town. Um, a little bit south of Houston. Now, this shooting does not play into a number of the common narratives. Uh, the shooter in this particular case did not use one of those semi-automatic rifles. Instead, he showed up with a handgun and a shotgun that he had apparently taken from his parents' house. So th- this isn't... This isn't one of those situations where you've got the AR-15 and banning, for example, semi-automatic assault rifles. That does not stop this school shooting. Um, complicating the matters even more is this particular kid that does not have a history, at least so far nobody's been able to discover it, a, a history of, I don't know, overt mental illness. I mean a lot of times you have these stories and people look back and say yeah we knew this kid was a time bomb waiting to explode. In this particular case that does not appear to be the circumstance. It was on the football team and honor student and um, obviously there's always a degree of teenage angst but it's not like this was one of those kids that you look at and say oh well everybody knew that he was going to do it. There were all these signs. At least so far that has not emerged. In addition you did have, I mean, you had school security that were present, and yet still he was able to you know, show up and engage in this behavior that left 10 people, eight students, two teachers dead, and another 10 injured. So it, it's got us going back to this whole gun control, how do you make schools safer argument. But again, it confounds a lot of the people who think the answer is, let's ban the AR-15s. Let, let's do that. That's how we have to start. But that doesn't address this. And that's sort of the situation that a lot of us have been saying. Look, you know, you, 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 okay, you get rid of a particular type of firearm. All right. Here this kid shows up with a shotgun and a handgun. He'd also apparently made a number of bombs as well based on, you know, his ability to simply go to a hardware store and get the stuff he needs. Well, into this jumps the former education secretary, Arnie Duncan. He goes out and he says, look, here's the latest example of you know a situation where you have this horrible school shooting here's what I think we should do parents should pull their children out of school until elected officials pass stricter gun control laws All right, he says this idea it's brilliant it's necessary what if no children went to school until gun laws change to keep them safe my family is all in if we can do it at scale Parents, will you please join us? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. It is, you know, parents of the world, is this the situation? Is it time to say we're not going to send our kids to school anymore until government gets together and passes tougher gun control laws? Now, of course, the problem is trying to do this in the aftermath of, like I say, what happened last week is, I don't know what gun control laws you pass that stops this particular thing from happening unless what we are talking about when we talk about gun control laws is confiscation of firearms. Like I say, this was a handgun. It was a shotgun that was legally owned by the boy's parents that he, he took out of the house. And I don't know. Do we ban shotguns? Do we ban handguns? It seems to me, if you want to try to prevent what happened at this high school, what you're talking about is confiscation. All right, so Arnie Duncan doesn't specify what gun control laws he wants to see, but is this the idea? Is it time to stand up and say we're going to boycott schools until things are safer? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I appreciate that there is a degree of frustration in dealing with this, But I have to tell you, this is the type of knee jerk stuff that is not, in my opinion, does not contribute to the conversation and is not healthy because it suggests that, gee, we can wave a magic wand and we can pass a law and things are going to be better. Well, I mean, tell me what law you're going to pass short of confiscating people's firearms that is going to stop something like what happened last week. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Bob and Madison. Bob, you're first. Good afternoon.
5: Well, good afternoon, Jeff. I just wanted to share with you, I grew up in the city of Milwaukee uh, during federally mandated busing, and my brother and I got in an altercation, and this isn't really a racial issue. The kids didn't want to be bused to the outskirts of town, and kids from outskirts didn't want to be bused in. And my dad pulled us from school because he didn't think it was safe. And three days later, the Milwaukee Police Department said, Sir, put your children back in school or we're going to arrest you.
0: <laughs> right, because the law says kids have to go to school. Right. Right.
5: And yeah, I agree with you. These knee-jerk reactions. Uh, you know, my son and I, my family, were big hunters. We only own hunting weapons. Um, we're almost willing to uh, say, you know, uh, assault rifles can go. Um, but these knee-jerk reactions right. to... Because this wasn't an assault
0: rifle, that that was the thing. This was the kid shows up shotgun. with a shotgun and a handgun that he that again was legally owned by his father. So the only way you could theoretically have denied this kid access to it would be if the father was not allowed to have guns in the house. And, and and the kid is 17. There's lots of kids in Wisconsin, for example, who own firearms. They use them for deer hunting or whatever or skeet shooting or whatever. I mean, are, are we going to say that the father, if you've got kids, minor kids in a home, you can't own firearms? Do we or do we really want to do that to stop or at least try to stop one of these things from happening? I don't think we're quite that far, Bob.
5: Well, and we're not, and I agree. I was given my 870 pump uh which I use mostly for deer hunting when I was 16. I um, can yeah present I'm, deer so
0: right no thanks for the call no I mean and that that again that that again underscores the problem and it, it's also one of the things that I find so particularly frustrating when you have these tragic circumstances and well we need gun laws well oh, okay maybe what we need is maybe you need more aggressive use of the schools to be to, for protective areas. You know, in Wisconsin, you're going to see them, them passing out. They've got millions of dollars that are around that we're going to use to help improve school security. My prediction is, I think on the federal level, that's where you're going to see a lot of money spent trying to enhance school security, making more money available for uh, school safety officers and things of the like so you can respond, because the truth of the matter is, and this shooting demonstrates it, You know, uh, unless you are really going to go to gun confiscation, unless you are going to try to take everybody's firearms from them, and I really don't believe there's political will to that, like talking like Arnie Duncan says, I want gun control laws, well, you're not going to stop these school shootings um, unless you're willing to go to confiscation. Let's talk to Danny in West Dallas. Danny, you're on WTMJ. Hello. How are you doing, Jeff? Real well, thank you. What do you think, sir?
6: Oh, boy. Uh, I think it's one of the silliest ideas I've ever heard, mostly because, okay, we've had problems with gun control ever since Brady got killed, you know, in the Reagan administration. Right. Shot, yes. And so we haven't had a serious answer to any of that, so what's supposed to happen? You know, are we supposed to say, okay, don't go to school? Well, then what? You're 25 before any law gets passed. It's going to do any good. And then... I agree with what you said too that our schools have to become almost fortified. We've been sitting around here with this like naive attitude that oh nothing's ever gonna happen in the schools and now that it's happening, we're we're basically being reactive instead of proactive.
0: Yeah, I I mean yes, exactly. I mean and this is look, I, I I think you have to figure out how you approach this. And you know, one of the areas if you say, okay, Jeff, you, you you tell me what the solution is. Well, I don't know that anybody has an absolute solution. I think you have to focus on intervention. I think you have to when you identify the people who are likely to do this stuff, I, I think then you know you have to focus on that. Now that doesn't solve all the problems because like I say, this kid Everybody says they, they didn't see it coming. I mean, on on a roll, you know, not one of these kind of disaffected loners. So that doesn't stop that. All right. In this particular case, like I say, it wasn't an AR-15. It wasn't one of those rifles that people say that pe- people shouldn't have. It was a shotgun and it was a handgun. Stuff that, you know, what what's the numbers? About 50% of Americans have one of those in their house. Um so unless we're going to take that away, you've got that issue there. I don't know that there is any sort of absolute, but I'd focus on intervention. I would focus on making schools safer with regard to you know, putting money into school security and things like that. But that's not going to solve it. But to simply say, well, unless you get a gun law, which in this case wouldn't have stopped the thing anyways, we're not going to send the kids to school. I mean, you know, give give me a break. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Linda in Franklin. Hi, Linda, you're on WTMJ. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think about all this?
7: Um, I think you guys are kind of all dancing around what the, one of the possible solutions is, and that is, if you are a gun owner, you have to lock your guns up, lock them in a cabinet, take a key, so that the kids don't know how to get into the gun cabinet. And if, they, if the kids do, if the parents are neglectful and the kids get at the guns, I think the parents need to be partially responsible what
0: happens with those guns um well of course that okay so if you have this was not an accidental shooting you have a you, you got a good kid at, at i'm saying good kid in quotation marks but a kid that doesn't isn't showing any signs at all that he might do something like this you think and he's he's 17 years old was he a high school senior or something like that you you think that the parents are at fault because they didn't have everything locked up so the seventeen year old could have access to it?
7: Well, it happens it happens in lots of different areas, like where kids get into guns and there is an accidental mm-hmm. shooting. So this is this is no different than that. Kids get into guns. He, he grabs the guns. He goes and he shoots up a place, even if he isn't, you know, um, showing signs of distress or mm-hmm. weirdness that he might go do something like that. Still. They're kids. They shouldn't be having guns. They don't know
0: how to handle them. Well, no, let me stop you there, though. I mean, our, our last caller said that, you know, he, he got his first deer rifle at, at 16. In Wisconsin, we allow kids to go hunting. Was it 10 now? I mean, 10 you can yeah, carry a gun now. or something like that. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, do we so I mean, we, we do allow children to have access to to firearms, you know, right. for recreational purposes and stuff. Do we need to roll that back?
7: No, not at all. I, I, I don't I don't think we need to roll that back at all. But I think that the kids should not have access to those guns unless they have parental guidance with them. So those guns should be locked up at all times unless there's a parent with them and they're using those guns for hunting or whatever they're going to, you know, do. But not to go and grab the gun when there's nobody there watching them and they can go and do whatever they want with the gun.
0: Okay, well, thanks. For, I mean, I guess that's... I, I, I mean, I, I guess I... I understand, but at the same time, there's all sorts of, uh, the, the vast majority of minors who, you know, have access to firearms and use those firearms, I mean, they, they do it, they participate in the skeet shooting clubs or they go, you know, and they're in the rifle shooting clubs or the handgun shooting clubs or, you know, they're on farms and they do it for recreation. They're, they're, the, the, the number of kids that do this that, you know, in this particular fashion, it, it's just a teeny, teeny, tiny percentage of the, the overall firearm users that are out there. And I guess I at, at what point do you say this? Now, this kid was 17. I don't know when he was going to turn 18. But if he's living at home and he's 18, um, w- where do you go with this? It, it's sh- the reality is short of confiscation. Short of actually saying the Second Amendment does not apply to private ownership of firearms, and we're going to come and take people's guns. The bottom line is I, I don't think any of the restrictions on guns works. I, I think, on the other hand, unless we're willing to talk about confiscation, what you have to do is go the other way, which is put the money into school security, put the money into early identification, put the money into prevention. Um, that's not going to be a perfect thing. It, it's not. But short of gun confiscation, I I don't know what else you do. And the idea to keep your kids home. My goodness, Arnie Duncan. It's like the public schools don't have enough problems. 1249, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1253. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, Gru, I know who's producing the show today and always. I know that one of the big regrets in your life is that you were born too late. You missed the 1960s. Well, if you really, if you want to relive the '60s, here's what's going on out, hippy dippy Madison. They are having what they call what do they call this? It's called Party with a Purpose, and it's it's a hippie event. It is a reunion. It's going to be conducted June 14th to 16th, um, 50 years later. So you know if you if you miss 19 if you know 1968. Um, and, and you say, I, I just I want to go ahead and relive 1968, you can go back to Madison, June 14th to 16th. Um, they're looking for still-vibrant hippies, so I guess if you're on your walker or something, they don't necessarily want you, and activists trekking in um, and just enjoying this. Uh, the story in USA Today in the journal Sentinel quotes somebody from this travel marketing thing who's known as, uh, well, she's apparently really good at trend spotting. The Madison reunion, she says, plays to... Gypsy baby boomers, people basically who are collecting Social Security, have the mortgage paid and the kids raised. They love road trips and are literally gypsying around the United States. Now, what somebody needs to tell this woman is that, okay, this isn't the 60s anymore. That is incredibly politically incorrect. You are not allowed to – even when you were describing aging hippies, you are not allowed to use the term gypsy anymore because it is offensive. So here you have – I mean – it, this that's what struck me is so interesting. They're billing this art. Right, if, if you're a gypsy baby boomer, come to Madison. But of course, we, we can't use the term gypsy anymore because people get offended by that. Bottom line is, bottom line is, if you want to experience what the 1960s were like, June 14th to 16th in Madison, expect a lot of uh, tie dye. Expect a lot of like bald guys with the long gray ponytails. Expect I I would imagine lots of uh, semi-controlled substances and things of the like. As as everybody comes back who remembers 1968 as being the high point in their life, but now want to go back and and relive it again, my, my guess is the protest marches and stuff will be a little bit tamer. That would just be my guess. But if you want to come to the hippie reunion... Madison, June 14th to the 16th. It's 1256. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, coming up in just a couple minutes, President Trump, can I say Warpath? You can't say Gypsy anymore. Can you say Warpath? Is that politically incorrect too? Anyhow, President Trump sending out a whole bunch of tweets over the weekend calling out uh, the Justice Department talking about this revelation that apparently the FBI planted an informant slash spy in the Trump campaign. You know what? This is one where even though the president is well approaching it in a kind of ham handed way, he might have a point. We're going to discuss. It's twelve fifty six. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's one hundred eight. This is Jeff Wagner, so very glad to have you with us. All right, one of the other breaking news stories last week that has just exploded over the weekend requires you to analyze it correctly. You have to, in some respects, separate the personalities from the issue. We all know about the ongoing, it seems to be never-ending, always-expanding investigation into the, the Donald Trump campaign in 2016. We all understand what a polarizing figure President Trump is. Okay, so get all that. The revelations over the weekend, and it started in the Washington Post and the New York Times, Apparently, the FBI, July of 2016, um, this is in the run-up to Trump being nominated, sent an informant, spy, use whatever point you want, to infiltrate the Trump campaign. Um, And the New York Times and the Washington Post reported on various meetings the informant had with various people. Well, um... The, the New York Times and the Washington Post decided not to name the guy, but they reported in details of the timing of the different meetings and stuff, and so it, it wasn't too hard for other media outlets to connect the dots. So let's let let's get rid of this pretense. The the FBI informant was a guy named Stephen Halper, who's seventy three years old. Um, he previously had, had served in the Nixon, Ford, and Reagan administrations. He's now a professor. At Cambridge, right, so he's 73 years old. Over the last two years, 2016 and 2017, in 2016, Halper was paid $282,000 from the Department of Defense's Office of Net Assessment, which is a think tank that reports directly to the Secretary of Defense. He collected $129,000 in 2017. He's a Cambridge professor, and it, it's a little bit unclear about what what he did to get all that money. But sometime in 2016, apparently, and I don't know if he's been an FBI informant before that, but in 2016, with the blessing of the FBI, he started contacting people involved in the Trump campaign. Uh, apparently, first of all, he went to Trump campaign advisor, um, Carter Page, and had a, a series of, he he contacted Page um, at a British symposium, and the two remained in regular contact for more than a year. Um, he met with another Trump campaign co-chairman, Sam Clovis, in late August of 2016, offering his services as a foreign policy um, a- advisor. Um, and apparently never told the one guy that he had struck up conversations with the the other guys. Then, shortly after these meetings, he apparently reached out to the the character that's now been indicted for lying, this George George Papandopoulos. Now, this is a young, inexperienced campaign aide, and this FBI informant, the professor, offered Papandopoulos $3,000, and an all-expenses-paid trip to London, ostensibly to write a paper about energy in the eastern Mediterranean um, region. And then after using the the payoff and the trip to London as an entree, apparently was sending him emails like, George, you know about hacking the emails of Russia, right? A reference to the Trump campaign uh, trail riffs about Hillary Clinton's private email server. Um, So here you have the FBI Trying to infiltrate the Trump campaign. And again, they, they don't know, it's unclear now whether this informant was paid by the FBI to, to do these various things, but we know he's been paid enormous amounts of money by the, the federal government over the last couple years during the Obama administration to do this. All right. So the, the FBI, for, for its part, or people that want to defend the FBI, say, well, this, I mean, that's their job. Their job is to try to investigate and develop intelligence, and if they're worried that the Russians are monkeying around with a presidential campaign, of course you're going to use informants to try to, you know, gain that information. That would be the official justification of it. All right, the flip side of this is that, looking at this another way, you have a Democratic administration, Barack Obama's presidency, and you have, if you want to look at it this way, the Obama Justice Department, the FBI, deciding that they are going to try to use covert resources to infiltrate, uh, including paying money to members of the, you know, a rival campaign in an effort to try to gain information. Now, into this all, the, the, the way the Wall Street Journal describes this in editorial today is that into this all, Belly flops the president, which I think is a good way to describe this. Instead of sort of voicing some legitimate concerns about this, you know, the president is now directing the Justice Department to investigate, you know, what the FBI was doing. Was this politically motivated? What was the background to all of this? And now you have, again, this sort of huge brouhaha that is starting about, you know, what was the FBI doing? What were the motivations behind it? And all this. And I I understand because it because it's President Trump, and because President Trump doesn't go gently into the good night or anything. It's not raising, I think, some of the serious issues that are there. But it's also, oh, this is terrible. Were we infiltrated? Whatever. Um, Now you have everybody dividing sides. But but I I do the way I think you got to think about this is whether or not it is appropriate during a political campaign for an instrument of of government to start investigating, you know, through the use of, of informants, and these aren't people that are coming from the campaign and complaining, but outside informants who are presumably paid money to go in and solicit and develop relationships with members of the campaign for the express purpose, obviously, of trying to, you know, dig up dirt on those members of the campaign. Um, and especially when you've got one political party in power and the campaign that you are infiltrating is a campaign of another candidate. Let's take Donald Trump out of this equation. All right, Let, let's forget forget that it was the Trump campaign being investigated. What if a year from now it comes out, Bernie Sanders is running for president again. And it comes out that the FBI, at, under, under the Trump administration, has now sent out confidential informants to attempt to infiltrate the Bernie Sanders organization in an effort to determine whether there's been criminal wrongdoing or, or whatever. Now, again, take Trump out of it. Forget that it was the Obama, the FBI under Obama that was doing this to Trump. What if it was the FBI under Trump a year from now that was going out and, again, using informants, presumably paid informants, we don't know that for sure, to develop meetings, try to obtain information, try to develop confidences with members of the Bernie Sanders campaign or the Elizabeth Warren campaign or whatever? Well, under those circumstances, wouldn't people be screaming bloody murder? 414-799-1620, that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Now, again, like I said, Wall Street Journal says President Trump kind of belly-flopped into this with all the different tweets and all, and now it's hopelessly politicized. But having said that, is there something that you find a bit troubling about, I don't know, during a political campaign, if this is what happened, and if you believe the Washington Post and the New York Times, it appears it does, during the heart of a political campaign, a, a law enforcement agency, to run by in this case, it's an appointee of, of Barack Obama, whether it was Eric Holder or the lady that replaced him, whose name has just went out of my mind for a minute, you know, actively investigating that that campaign, uh, you know, the campaign of a rival four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line, and I, I will tell you, I, I find this to be a very troubling precedent. Um, I understand the FBI uses confidential informants all the time. I have no problem with that. I understand the FBI pays informants to go obtain this information, and one of the ways they they strike up relationships is they offer money. In this case, this young campaign aide gets offered $3,000 and a free trip to England in an effort. The informant is obviously trying to ingratiate himself. But does this stuff give you pause? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Regardless of again who's doing it to whom, we discuss next. It's one eighteen. This is Jeff Wagner. One twenty one. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Patrick in Waterford. Patrick, good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you think?
6: I, I think it's completely appropriate. I don't care who the candidate is. The president of the United States, the most powerful position in the world is the commander-in-chief of the military. And if any other member of the military, if they want a, a security clearance, they are investigated thoroughly. If you have any affiliation to any kind of corporate entities or anything that's questionable with foreign entities, you will not get a security But but,
0: but who? I guess here's the thing. Who decides that? So you've got, in this case, you've got Donald Trump running to be president, you've got the FBI, which works for, which is under the control of the Democratic administration. They get to decide that they're going to investigate the rival campaign or, again, to take the politics out of it. If Trump is running for reelection and he decides or his attorney general decides, we should start an investigation next year of the Bernie Sanders campaign, and use we're going to use informants to that. That you don't see that as being a potential problem.
6: I think there should be independent investigations, mm-hmm. and I, I don't see a problem with uh, you know our president being scrutinized or investigated in any way, shape, or form.
0: Well, but they, of course they're, they're not. But they they're not independent investigations. I mean, see that's that's. I, I will tell you this has very Nixonian sort of overtones. I mean, this has overtones of uh, again, you know, one administration using government resources in a very, very aggressive way to come in and investigate members of a rival party that are running for office. and that's where I think the the whole issue and the problems behind this you know come together they're not independent in investigations i mean it's it's an fbi in this case it was you know james comey's fbi that reports to barack obama and reports to eric holder you know it's not like there's an independent sort of thing and i and plus i mean obviously there needs to be investigations but where where this was a little different too is this was an apparently an aggressive use of, you know, informants, presumably a paid informant, who they sent out and they said, okay, we want you to try to, you know, develop contacts and here, take this Papadropoulos guy who's a young aide and here, give give him $3,000 in an effort to try to ingratiate yourself, give him $3,000 and fly him to London for a symposium. Um, Presumably now, I think it'll come out, but I mean, presumably, did the FBI pay for all that? I mean, what, where did this all go? And again, I, I don't think anybody's above the law, and I'm not suggesting that. And and I think again, the way the president has handled this over the last couple of days is has to has been ham handed at best. But but there are aspects of this that I think is is troubling as far as the the use of these informants and in the active investigation during the height of a campaign of of one branch of government regarding the rivals. And and I guess if if you don't think so, just again, switch the thing. And I understand the concern here is that so many people out there either love President Trump or absolutely hate him that you think anything goes. But again, think about this. How would you feel if you are one of the Trump haters out there? How would you feel if a year from now it comes out that the FBI— the current FBI that reports to the Trump Attorney General Jeff Sessions had been sending informants and trying to infiltrate the Bernie Sanders campaign or the Elizabeth Warren campaign. Well, my guess is there would be outrage. New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, everyone would be outraged by by that. Um, And I guess my question would be, if it's good for the, the goose, isn't it good for the gander? It's 125, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's one twenty-seven. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Number text texts on this. Somebody says, "Is this any different than the IRS messing with conservative political action committees?" No, it, it's it's not, and that's where it, that's where it's a really really fine line. Now, obviously, nobody, nobody would suggest that you know a political campaign should be above the law. And if there's evidence that there's rule violations or law violations, of course, you know, the people aren't exempt from it just because you're in politics. But again, here's the problem with this. It, it's when this decision-making comes in, is there the overtone of politics to it? And when you start using an aggressive investigative technique now keep in mind this isn't hey we're subpoenaing records this isn't we've got people from inside the organization that're providing this information this is here we're going to go we're going to list and thus confidential informants the president calls them spies but you know we'll call them informants we're going to pay them a bunch of money and then we're going to send them in and we're going to see you know we're going to have them try to ingratiate themselves including to the point that apparently this this Cambridge professor was trying to solicit a, a job, a role in the campaign as a foreign policy advisor. And, again, re- reverse the situation. I mean, can you imagine you've got, again, let, let's say it's a Democrat, it's Bernie Sanders that's running for office, and you find out that the FBI, the Trump FBI, is sending you know a, a confidential informant in, to try to get a position with the Bernie Sanders campaign with the knowledge that that person is then going to be putting and sending that information back to the, the Trump Department of Justice. Hmm. I mean, I think it raises all sorts of, of issues. And, you know, I, I don't know where this is all going to pan out. Should there be an investigation determining what the motivation of this was? I I think the answer is yes. I think there almost has to be. Does this revelation undercut whatever investigation Bob Mueller is conducting? No, I I don't. But I I admit that I was a little bit taken aback that the FBI would use this sort of tactic, including apparently trying to plant somebody in the middle of, of an election in a political campaign. Unfortunately, none of us have heard the end of this. When we come back, if you want to see one of the stories we're going to be talking about, you can text me the word police, P-O-L-I-C-E. It will help you appreciate what a difficult job policemen have. Text it to 414-799-1620, and I'll send you a link to the story. It's 134, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. There is real racism in this world. The problem is... When people play the race card in such a way, number one, where it it does not deserve to be played, it can be incredibly hurtful, but yet people want to, it seems they want to believe it. Here's a story, just breaking it. It's out of a a community in South Carolina, and there's the head of the local NAACP office down there. His name is Jared Moultrie. Well, um, he he made a Facebook post. Um, that generated a ton of attention. I'm going to share just a portion of this with you. Um, here's what it says. Tonight, I was racially profiled by a Timminsville, this would be Timminsville, South Carolina, officer, because I was driving a Mercedes-Benz and going home in a nice neighborhood. But, you know, tomorrow they will hear from me. Um, he says, here's the way it went. Um, I was stopped. I said, hello, sir, how can I help you? The officer said, I'm stopping you because... You um, failed to put on a turn signal. Do you have any drugs in the car? This is him recounting on Facebook. The guy says, sir, how would you know if I used my turn signal when you were approaching me, and why are you asking me are there any drugs in my car? The officer said, license and registration. Um, he says, I was getting it. The officer asked me, where do you work? Who is in the car with you, and why are you in this neighborhood? He says, I'm a pastor. I live in the house on the left. The officer says, and I guess I am Bill Gates, obviously mocking the fact that the African-American man could be driving a Mercedes and live in this area. Uh, The guy says, sir, what's the problem? He said, I ask you whose car this is for the last time and what you are doing in this neighborhood. He says, I told him, this is my neighborhood. I'm in this car. Um, Can I speak to your supervisor, et cetera, et cetera. And it it goes on and, and on like this. So he posts all this. And, of course, you have, predictably, a degree of, of outrage over this. I mean, here you have this white police officer that stops a black man driving a Mercedes Benz and accuses him of uh, being you know, the car being stolen and him trafficking in drugs. And the guy goes on at one point in time, he says that you know his wife and his grandchild were in the car and they were afraid that the officer was going to shoot him and all those type of things. Well, all right, huge investigation. Now, everybody focusing on this officer, well, in this particular case, the officer happened to be wearing one of those body cameras. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, that I have, I have argued all the time that I, I think, hang the expense, I think the cops should be wearing these body cameras because I believe that, I don't know, fill in the blank, 75% of the time, 80% of the time, I think they are going to show that the police officer behaved appropriate. So now you have all right. This guy who's his pastor who's made all these incendiary, you know, allegations against the police officers. Well, okay, they investigated. it. Well, the police chief released the body camera the other day, and again, that's what. If you want to see it, you can text me the word "police" to four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. But it's about three and a half minutes, and and what it shows, it shows the entire encounter. You have the officer walk up to the car. Guy rolls down the window. The officer says, um, "Sir, I need to see your license and registration." Um, you, you didn't. I'm stopping you because you didn't make you didn't put on your turn signal. The guy, you know, comes up, gets the license, gets the registration. The officer goes back to his car, and you can see him. He's in there. He, he runs the plates. He then comes back and he says, "Well, the pro- you got a problem because your car." The license plates come back to a, a 1992 truck, and then the guy who's driving says, well, you know, the, the car is new, and I transferred the plates, and they told me that's all I had to do. And the cop says, well, that's that's wrong because, you know, you, you have to, he said, under the law, you know, you have to, the the plates have to be with the car. Whoever told you that at the DMV told you wrong, but, you know, you're, you shouldn't be driving this car until you get this all straightened out because the plates come back to a different vehicle. Here's your license thank you, sir, be sure to wear your seatbelt, have a nice day, and walks away. Nothing about what are you doing in this neighborhood, nothing about we think you're a drug dealer, nothing about, yeah, I'm Bill Gates, you don't own something. This reverend completely and totally lied about the situation. It was all made up, and it was caught on body cameras. And so now, matter of fact, a number of these civil rights activists who were outraged when the guy made the report They came down and and they viewed the videotape and they're all kind of, oh, my gosh, you know, this is terrible. that This guy would make all this stuff up. But the truth is, without those body cameras, there would be a huge segment of the community that would have probably believed the man who claimed that he was racially profiled instead of the police officer who you can now see did absolutely everything, everything correctly. right, our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess I have two takeaways from this. Number one, this is why I think officers should have body cameras, because, as I say, I believe the vast majority of the time it is going to protect them from false claims of misconduct. Number two. I I do seriously wonder, and again, this is with the acknowledgement that there is real racism in this world and things like that. You wonder how many of these claims that aren't caught on body camera um, are, are, if not trumped up, no pun intended, are overblown or absolutely outright false like this one was. Mike on the south side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, uh,
6: how are you? Hi, Mike. Uh I'm a law enforcement officer in Milwaukee County, and I've been wearing a body camera since October, and I absolutely love it. I cannot uh, fathom going back to not having one. You know, it holds accountability for us, but more so the public. In situations like this, I can't get enough of these stories of these political leaders or agenda leaders that are getting exposed for their corruption and their behavior with law enforcement. Uh, there was that story on the East Coast with that woman who ended up getting fired, screaming and yelling at the officers. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that it doesn't even change personal behavior much when dealing with somebody on the street. You'll tell them, listen, you're being recorded right now. Can you calm down? They don't do it. Um, I'm a little disappointed with the Milwaukee Police Department situation and them not having, uh, body cameras and not having, or not having tasers right. over the body cameras. You know, so departments need to really realize that these things are a great tool and uh, the officers are actually starting to light them.
0: Well, 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 right, Mike, because, I mean, this is the classic example. Let's say there wasn't a body camera. And so all you have is, in this case, the, the local community leader who's the pastor saying I was racially profiled and the police officer said all these terrible things to me. You knew there, you know that uh, there would be a certain segment of the community that would simply believe him. They wouldn't want to hear what the officer had to say. There'd be marches, there'd be protests, there'd be, hey, we need the Justice Department to conduct its investigation. And, and now because of that body camera, you know it was all BS. <laughs> you just know that.
6: Absolutely. And the way this media is, you know the media and public wanted them. Now the media and public are seeing what it's doing, and it's only looking making us look better. And I hope continually I get to keep mine and wear mine, and other departments get them as well. And these videos keep going, and you keep talking about it. Thank no, you. No,
0: thanks for the call, Mike. And again, that's that's why I'm such an advocate of this because I, I mean, look, I, I again I, I keep coming back. to This I, I am not suggesting that you know, all claims or even a majority of the claims of police brutality or whatever or racial profiling or whatever is, I'm not saying, I I take no position on, you know, any individual claim, but I am saying that there are situations where people make this stuff up, and this is one of these examples. It was a very, very incendiary post by this guy who's, I guess, a pastor local leader in the NAACP in that community who's making this very incendiary stuff. Now, why he's making this up, I I don't know. Does he want to get attention to himself? Does he have some beef with the police? Does he want to call attention to issues? But there are a percentage of these claims that are just flat-out false. This police officer who did everything by the book, and that's why, I mean, I – I watched the four minutes of the video, the whole thing, because I'm trying to assess is, is there anywhere where he smarts off to the guy or whatever handled in a completely and totally professional environment. Now, he does say to him, he didn't even give the guy a ticket. He does say to him when he goes back, hey, your car is registered to a 1992 truck. And the the guy then is saying, well, I went to the DMV and they told me this. He said, well, whatever they told you there is wrong, You know, your plates have to match the plates that are on the car and you you need to get this taken care of because it's illegal to drive a car where the plates don't match. So whatever you got to do, you got to end up doing it. But it's not rude. It's not threatening. He doesn't even get a ticket for this. It's thank you, sir. You know you know have a nice evening. Make sure you wear your seatbelt. I mean that's that's what this whole thing is. But without the body camera, you would not have known that this was going on. So I mean again, it, it's I, I bring this up because it's one of these. It's one of these jarring things where we always want to believe the, the worst. And we, we always want to believe, oh, you've got these out of control police officers or whatever. And a lot of times, it's not just that there's two sides to the story, it's that one of the stories doesn't make any sense in the first place. And this is one of these classic examples of uh, the guy, for whatever reason, was lying, and the police got the police video caught it. The officer did nothing wrong. Hey, when we come back, what's going on with gasoline? I'll tell you my story from the weekend. Stick around. 145, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 149, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, 49 degrees outside. It has been raining a good portion of the morning and looks like it's going to be, continue to rain a good portion of the day. Um, it has been an, abs- can we stipulate that with a couple of days aside, it's, it's been just an absolutely crummy spring so far. Um, we're heading into Memorial Day, and I, I, I was telling somebody the other day, I've managed to i have managed to play nine holes of golf twice simply because I, I typically do it Sunday mornings, and the, the Sundays that I have been available to play, it's either been raining or it's been 45 degrees and the ground's been soaked. I mean, it's just been a miserable spring, but it's 49 degrees outside. Now, Gru, who's producing the show, um, we just had that commercial for some roofing company and all. Talk about a wonderful roof. All right, tonight... My wife and I, we're going to the Brewers game. And you know what? There is going to be a Brewers game. Um, You will be able to hear it on WTMJ if you're not fortunate enough to have tickets to go yourself. But, you know, there's going to be a Brewers game. Brewers coming off a great road trip. 7-3, 7-3, and three. this was, matter of fact, I said it at the start of the trip, this was, I think, going to be kind of a defining trip because you can't win pennants, you know, in, in May, but you can put yourself really behind the 8-ball, and if they had gone out and lost 8 out of 10, that might have been a different dynamic. But they went, they won 7 out of 10 games, you know, come back in first place by a game and a half. Um, fun team to watch. But the bottom line is, um, if this were if this were County Stadium, the reality is they would not be playing tonight. They, they just... You know, 49 degrees outside and rain, this game would have been called off and had to have been rescheduled just like so many other games in this early part of the season. But because you've got Miller Park and because you've got the roof, we get to go and enjoy baseball and you can hear it here on WTMJ as well. What a, what just a, just a great sort of thing. Gotta love it. And this team, I think they are for real. So jump on that Brewers bandwagon. Here's a bandwagon you don't want to jump on though. The mean streets of Milwaukee continue to get meaner and crime continues to spread. And this is one of the things that I want to underscore because a lot of times I I understand we have a very, very broad listening area and people will say to me, gee, Jeff, I live in Kiwaska you know, why do I care about problems in the city of Milwaukee? Why do I care about the crime problems? Why do I care about crime problems in Milwaukee County? I don't go down to Milwaukee County. Why do I care about this? Well, you need to care because one of the things we've started to see is that the crime problem, the criminal element in Milwaukee, has been spreading out to the suburbs to the point that, you know, you have teenage crews from Milwaukee coming out to Kewaskam, for example, driving around looking for cars to steal. You have ladies coming out of the shopping center out in West Bend, the Piggly Wiggly on 33, and getting robbed at 8 o'clock in the morning, carjacked by, uh, again, criminals from Milwaukee. So Channel 4 reporting car break-ins, plaguing various neighborhoods. Um, the way they report it, it was a rough weekend for car break-ins in Milwaukee, and local glass shops are trying to keep up with the work. Okay, get get this. Um, since May 1st, so today is, what, May 21st, so 20 days. Since May 1st, the Shorewood Police Department says it had about 16 car break-in complaints. 16. So almost one a day. And the, the way these car break-ins occur is somebody comes up with a baseball bat or a crowbar or whatever, busts the window of the car, and then goes rifling through the car trying to find if there's anything of value in it. Most times they don't find anything, but it doesn't matter. They've destroyed the window or whatever. you got to pay, depending on the car, somewhere between $200 and $600 to fix your windows. Maybe you've got insurance, maybe you don't. But regardless, it's a huge cost and expense. Um, a week ago, thieves stealing cars from homes in Whitefish Bay, and I'm willing to bet you um, all the money in my wallet right now grew versus all the money in yours that the people that are doing these break-ins in Shorewood, the people that are break- doing these break-ins and car thefts in Whitefish Bay, the people that are stealing the cars in Kewaskum, they are coming from Tom Barrett's Milwaukee and spreading out. Now, that's not always the case, but it is a lot of times. But here's the other story. Um... With car break-ins, here, Channel 4 is reporting that um, in there were, let's see, how many did they say they had one river, one river West neighborhood alone had five cars with windows smashed in the 2,500 block of North Booth Street. All of the cars were locked. People didn't leave anything in Nothing of significant value was stolen. In one case, thieves took some pennies. And car chargers from one of the vehicles, one of the victims says they just went through it, they broke the window, it's raining, so the rain came in, we had that damaged. By Sunday around noon, crews at these glass repair shops had repaired 20 windows and more cars with smashed windows were lined up to be served. Uh, Apparently, this is the thing, you've got the criminal element of walkie who they're trying to steal cars, If they can't steal the car, they bust into the car, break the window, and steal anything they can find in the car, and there doesn't appear to be anything that authorities can do to stop this other than to say, well, be vigilant. Well, I don't know what that means when you leave your car outside locked with nothing in it at 3 o'clock in the morning, and yet you have the thieves that are doing it. So the bottom line is you've got this crime problem. It is not getting better. It is arguably getting a lot worse. And they tell people, be vigilant. Don't know what exactly that means. Um, I used to say maybe vigilant means move out of some of the bad neighborhoods, but that doesn't help you anymore because even if you're away from some of the bad neighborhoods, well, what ends up happening is the criminals are coming to visit you. Maybe what we need to do is get tough on these criminals in the first place. Just saying. 155 Jeff Wagner, WTFJ Hey, when we come back in a little bit, I want to talk about gas prices here versus gas prices elsewhere and whether or not we really need to rethink this idea of increasing the gasoline tax. Stick around. It's 209 Jeff Wacker, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us on a cold, rainy afternoon. All right. Um, I was off for a couple days. I um, there had actually been a death in the family. And so uh, I attended the funeral. We were uh, uh, my wife and I, we, we, we drove left early Thursday morning, uh, drove out to Omaha, came back yesterday. It's about oh, a little around 500 miles, give, give or take. So um, and, and it's actually it's – a, it's a pleasant – it's an unfortunate circumstance about doing this. But, I mean, it's, it's not that hard to get to. There's a couple different routes. On the way out, we went out to Madison and then down U.S. 151 through Dubuque. And you end up in uh, – right around Iowa City and you pick up Interstate 80 and you go west through Des Moines and you, you get to Cedar Rapids and you get to Omaha. So, so I drove Wisconsin – then through a good portion of Iowa. Coming back yesterday took a slightly different route. Um, we took Interstate 80, which runs pretty much from Omaha um, all the way across Iowa. And then once we got into Illinois, we picked up whatever that route is that goes up through um, Rockford and Beloit and came up that way. Just It's about a horse apiece. Um, it's actually, you know, they're, they're interesting kind of drives, and you get to see lots of farm fields, but you also get to enjoy different terrain one of the things that i I noticed dramatically though um, in, in the drive was that as soon as you got out of Wisconsin gas prices changed dramatically now when when I got back here yesterday I saw at most of the gas stations in the area where I live gasoline was about 295 a gallon, and maybe you can find it cheaper. But it was like two ninety four. Although there were a couple stations I saw where gas was over three bucks a gallon already. So two ninety four to about three dollars, um, and I think when we left, it was about in the two eighty range. Throughout Iowa. And in Nebraska over over the weekend, and again, I, I understand stuff can change dramatically. But all I can tell you is what I saw over the last couple of days in Omaha. When I put gasoline in the car, it was in two. It was it was about two sixty, and even yesterday coming back, I think two seven two seventy four. So it was about a quarter twenty to thirty to forty cents cheaper in Nebraska. And in Iowa, than it was in in at least southeastern Wisconsin. I, I don't. I didn't. I really. I didn't stop anywhere in Illinois yesterday to fill up. So I'm not. I, I wasn't kind of paying attention to it. So I don't know how. At least in western Illinois, it related. But uh, again, gasoline uh, a, at least a quarter, and in some cases more expensive in Wisconsin. Then in Iowa and in Nebraska. And I don't know, again, did the, the, the prices maybe skyrocket overnight in, in Omaha or in Iowa, so it's more comparable. All I can tell you is there was a pretty decent difference that I noticed immediately when we went out there. Don't know if that's necessarily just the effect of the reformulated gas that we have to use, the special blend that we have to use around here in the spring, but there, there was at least a significant difference. And for people who drive a lot, I don't know, you know, 25 cents, that does make a difference. I mean, if you're going through, you know, a tank or two of, of gas a week, you know, just that, that quarter difference, let's say it's a quarter difference, you know, two fifty, three three bucks every time you fill up, you go through two g- tanks a week, if you drive a lot, okay, you know, you're talking six bucks, you start to extrapolate that over the course of a year, it, it makes a difference. So I, I was sort of struck by that, which brings me to the point I would like to discuss with you. There are a number of Democrat candidates who are running to replace Scott Walker. One of the issues that is emerging, one of the things that is emerging in the, the campaign as people try to distinguish themselves, uh, as they try to stand out, is many, not all, but many of the Democrat candidates are running on a platform of let's increase the gas tax. Now, as I think a lot of people know in Wisconsin, the gasoline tax has essentially been locked in at $0.32.9 a gallon for a number of years. Many of the candidates back increasing it. Some say as much as 8 to $0.10 a gallon. Others say what we should do is not only should we increase it, but we should go back to indexing it, which is what we used to do years ago, where it will automatically go up um, based on inflation. So, you know, if inflation goes up 2%, well, the gasoline tax will go up 2%, which if that happens, given that we're already paying more than many of our neighboring states, uh, that means that, you know, you're going to end up, uh, again, not only are just because we're in Wisconsin versus Iowa or or Nebraska or whatever, we're paying more, but you start increasing the gas tax, raise it eight cents, raise it a a dime, for example, and then continue to have it go up after that. And and pretty soon you're you're starting to talk about, you know, bigger money, right? 414-799-1620. That is the AccuNet mortgage talk and text line. This really did kind of hit home on, on this trip where I was, you're driving more than I, I typically do, at least in you know solid things where you're driving 500 plus miles one way and the other. All right, obviously the roads need work, but is the way to do it to increase the gas tax? And if we do increase the gas tax, another dime, another you know 15 cents a gallon, and then index that, is that going to be a problem for people when we're already again? Paying more than at least in some of our neighboring states. And again, I, I understand if you're in Chicago, it might be more, but I'm talking about Wisconsin versus Iowa, Wisconsin versus Western Illinois, Wisconsin versus Nebraska. Should we increase the gas tax? 414 799 1620. We discuss next. It's 215. This is Jeff Wagner. 218. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A number of Democrats running for governor are running on a platform of increasing the, the gas tax. Again, as somebody who just did a lot of driving through Wisconsin and Iowa and Nebraska over the last couple of days, already our gas prices here are probably, at least over the weekend, I, I would say a quarter at least higher than in some of the neighboring states. We're, we're pushing 3 bucks a gallon. In some places, we're over $3 a gallon. $0.32.9 cents of that is tax. All right, what, what would adding another dime do? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's start with. uh, Let's see. Let's go to Dave and Racine. Hi, Dave.
6: Greetings. Well, Ben Franklin said, "A penny saved is a penny earned." And maybe the way to get more uh, road building done is maybe to actually do it more efficiently. Get more out of the money that we're all getting instead of building roundabouts every five seconds just because some engineer thinks they're cool, or maybe building, you know, actually doing the engineering work done right. And having a position, so the road doesn't have to be rebuilt, and you know Re- rebuilt after like
0: two or three years, like happened downtown Milwaukee, for example. Exactly. Yeah, no. Thanks. Well, I mean, there, there, there is that issue. Now, the I mean, the flip side is: look, we we all understand that roads need to need to come. We have to get the roads from somewhere. I happen to think a gas tax, for a variety of reasons, gas tax increases are non-starters. I think if you're going to get the money. What you need to do is figure out a way to, there, there's other sources, or maybe kind of think outside the box, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, right now, it's one thing to talk about a gas tax increase when gasoline prices are you know $2.30, $2.40, but now that they're over $3, now that we're paying more than a number of our neighboring states are paying, the question becomes, are you really going to jack it up higher? 414-799-1620. seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to Rick in Fort Atkinson. Rick, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
8: Hi. I had a couple thoughts on that. One is uh, what happened to discuss, what's, what happened to discussions about dropping the minimum markup. I recall a guy that was a big operator, convenience store operator in the Upper Peninsula. Right. Uh, Crist, I think was his name. And uh, he said he would like to drop prices in Wisconsin, but he can't because yep. of the minimum markup.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, uh, the whole idea that if, you, if you're a gasoline company, let's say you're, I'm just a uh, quick trip, and I, just, just for the yep. sake of example so people can envision it. And if quick trip decides, you know, we, we sell all this stuff in our store, so let us sell gasoline at cost. Or let us sell gasoline even below cost because we believe that the majority of people, they're not just going to buy gas. They're going to come in and they're going to buy coffee or they're going to buy donuts or they're going to buy whatever. And we think we can make money by using the gas as a loss leader. Why would the state of Wisconsin not allow us to do that? That's kind of your point, huh?
8: Yes. uh, And uh, I was amazed at the differential between minimum markup uh, and uh, at cost. Uh, So there's – there's a lot of profit there that's going uh, to uh, keep the competition down. Uh, yeah. so I, I just think that would be a good cost savings and we all know that we need more money for the roads. so why not explore something like that again? And my other issue was what why where did this $100 dollar per child thing come out of this being doled out? Uh, we know we've had a big issue for the roads and suddenly, Millions of dollars are going out to families and, and I don't want to take money away from them, but we know we've got a road problem, so why couldn't some of that money have been used for
0: yeah and i think that's I think that's fair I guess my thanks for calling. my answer would be long term for for roads you need to find a sustainable and an ongoing sort of, of way to raise money. Yeah, you, you could have taken that. And I mean, I, the thinking behind the, the child tax credit was that, that that surplus is tax money that taxpayers have overpaid. And, and again, I, I think, you know, you, you can you can debate the wisdom of this. But the thinking, and I don't presume to speak for the Walker administration, but the, the, what the Republicans in the legislature and the governor did is, all right, we have collected more taxes we, you know, we, we had budgets. We've collected more money than we needed. So what's the best way to do it? Do we take this extra money that we have over-collected, essentially, from the taxpayers, and do we give it back to the people that gave us this money in the form of this, this child tax credit, or is it better to spend it on something else? Now, philosophically, I mean, I understand you might say, well, all right, they've over-collected it. Um, let's spend it on something else. I, I don't intellectually or philosophically have a problem with saying all right we have over collected and instead of taking the money and spending it somewhere else let's give it back to the people just like if you overpaid on your loan for your your home loan for example for a given year you've overpaid that money you would expect the bank to give you back the money not say hey you know we're going to take the money and we're going to give it to charity because everybody we're going to use it to help Homeless people, because even though everybody thinks you're still homeless people, it, it's really, you know, it's is it the decision of the bank to make? that? That's at least philosophically where the issue comes in. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Tom in Appleton. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Tom.
4: Yep. Uh, it, it happens every year. Uh, there's always a, a golf crisis, uh, refinery blew up. Memorial Week, it it goes up twenty five to fifty cents a gallon, and you know it'll come back down in a month.
0: Well, how do you account for the difference between from one state to another?
4: Well, Iowa has the corn credit; they Mm -hmm. get the ethanol, you know, bonus and and some tax things that I don't understand, but they generally have cheaper gas than we do. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, yeah, no, and a gallon. Yeah, that that was Man. definitely the case. Well where do you come down on how about the underlying question about increasing the gas tax? So you're what you're saying is it's not going to be three bucks by you know, a month from now or two months from now we'll be back maybe down to two sixty or two seventy. Would would you
4: no, I'm I'm not big on the gas tax. I, I like what, you know, they've been doing and holding it steady and you know I, I just don't like the blowing in the wind thing. You know, it it's Okay, um, it, it comes up, it goes down, but you know there's, you know there's a, a reasonable level that it should be there. But Memorial Weekend, it's always fifty cents a gallon or more. Sure,
0: thanks. Well, and part of it here is keep in mind in southeastern Wisconsin, we th- there's always going to be there's spikes certainly in the spring and a lot of times in the fall because thanks to the the, the EPA we use a special brand of reformulated gas that they only use in certain areas in the country. And so, you know, they've got to convert over, make that make that type of gas that we're going to use during the summer and stuff. And so that adds a supply and demand type of thing. I, I, I'm just saying, I understand that we need to have, we need to pay for the roads and all. I, I think, I continue to believe, I think a gas tax increase, especially one that is unlimited – the idea that we're just going to index this so it automatically goes up year after year after year so the politicians don't have to take tough votes. I think that's a non-starter, and I will be honest with you. I am, like our first caller, I am not convinced that you you can't start by eliminating a lot of the waste, uh, eliminating some unnecessary projects, eliminating, oh, I don't know, some of the overpayments, I believe, the contractors. I think you start there, and I have always believed that gas tax increases or tax increases in general, they're they're what you do as a last resort. But at least for the time being, if you happen to be in Iowa or Nebraska and you're coming back, my advice would be fill fill up there because you will save a lot of money, at least you would have if you were traveling this weekend. It's 227. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 235. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Well, it was a nice surprise. See, Grew, you get to take the rest of the day off. I, at Talkers Magazine, which is the, um, the, the, it's sort of like Billboard except for the radio industry. And every year they come out with this thing they call the Heavy 100, which is like top 100 talk show hosts in the country. And we made the list again. So you get, yeah, it's, I think this is five years and six or six out of seven, something like that. I, I lose track. But it's, we I it was 93. I'm, I'm in the 90s, but that's okay. We're there. So. You, you get credit for that, and, and you're you're going to be entrusted with the idea of like moving us from the 90s into the 80s or something like that. So that's gonna that's gonna be your goal. But it's always a, it is always a pleasure. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't get you doesn't get you coffee at Starbucks or anything like that. But it's always a nice recognition from the industry. Speaking of Starbucks, there. Um, speaking of Starbucks, I I and I, I I need to kind of back into this. I'm. I'm not a Starbucks I, – I, I go to Starbucks occasionally, but I'm not one of the guys that's kind of that, – that ever drank the, the Starbucks Kool-Aid slash coffee. I mean, I've, I've always thought – I like a good cup of coffee, but I kind of I've always thought it's very, very overpriced. and And nowadays, my routine is I've got the K cups of a special kind of coffee that I like, and I'll have coffee at home. And then I've got this really good travel mug that keeps stuff warm, and I'll make a mug of coffee, and that will last me for a good portion of the day. So I, I'm not one of the guys that goes to to Starbucks a lot. I, I also admit that I find some of the stuff at Starbucks and some of the like the corporate attitudes to be just incredibly preachy and pretentious. I mean, remember a couple of years ago, they had the idea that they were going to have the baristas who were going to engage in social conversations with people to which it's like, you know, with all due respect, give me a break. You know when I'm in Starbucks. The last thing I want is the guy, you know, with the six earrings and the tattoos and stuff, The last thing I want him doing is is talking to me. And I have nothing wrong. If you want to wear six earrings and tattoos, that's fine. But I I don't necessarily want to be engaging in social commentary. Just make the darn coffee. And inevitably, as somebody who just gets black coffee with a little bit of room for cream, I'm always behind the people that are getting like the triple mocha lattes, blah, 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 whatever. So that's kind of how I've played out Starbucks. But remember a couple months ago, you had the story at Starbucks about the two guys who happened to be African-American who went into the small Starbucks in Philadelphia. They, they hadn't ordered anything. They asked to use the bathroom. The manager wouldn't let them do it. They refused to leave. They ended up getting arrested. And then we were kind of off to, to the races. So first of all, Starbucks responds by saying, all right, we're going to close at least thousands of the stores at the end of this month. May 29th, I think, is the date I have in mind. And we're going to have, you know, um, just sensitivity training for, for all the employees. Okay, fine. That, that's great. That's, that's fine. What they have now announced is they're going to take a step forward, though. And they are now saying that the official policy of Starbucks is that you don't have to buy anything to hang out in the stores. The company has informed all U.S. employees that people can gather in their cafes and patios even if they don't buy drinks, and that store bathrooms are available to everyone. Any person who enters our spaces, including patios, cafes, and restrooms, regardless of whether they make a purchase, is considered to be a customer. So... If you want to hang out there, there is also apparently no limit as to how long that you can stay. So anybody who wants to use the bathrooms can use the bathrooms. Anybody who wants to sit and hang out for as long as they want at all Starbucks locations. All right, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I understand that on the one hand, this is great. Matter of fact, I had a, a friend of mine not long ago say, well, well, why shouldn't anybody be able to use the bathroom any anytime they want? huh?" To which I was like, well, I, I don't know. If you had a public park that didn't have a bathroom across from your house and you had everybody in the public park walking across and banging on your door to use your bathroom, well, what would you say? Or in Madison... Now, keep in mind, you have this huge problem with, for example, the homeless in downtown Madison who go into the public buildings and use the public restrooms to bathe, um, use the buildings to sit around there. I mean, all right, they're being noble, they're being kind, they're showing they've got a good heart, but they've now essentially saying that Starbucks is going to be essentially a shelter. Anybody in urban areas that wants to hang out, and stay for as long as they want and use the facilities are going to be able to do that. Is this a noble thing or is this going to lead to nothing but trouble? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Mike on the Northwest Side. Mike, you're on WTMJ.
5: Hey, uh, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Mike. I think they're opening the door to uh, vagrancy.
0: Well so
1: people uh, want to pay people want to pay five bucks for a cup of coffee and people want to hang out and do nothing. And you can. Uh that's different.
0: I, I mean I just they're,
1: they're
0: gonna lose it. I mean I, I mean Mike, I remember now this is going back years and years ago when, when I went to Marquette Law School, one of the and, and when I went, they, first they built an addition onto where I went, now they have essentially they've got a whole new law school. But there wasn't a lot of room in the library. I used to regularly go a couple blocks down and, and I'd study in the public library during the day. I'd go up on the second floor and they had even back then they had huge problems with homeless people during the winter who would hang out in the public library. And they'd find people, they'd be sleeping, you know, and and the librarians would always be around. They'd have to, you know, they'd be waking people up and stuff like that. I mean, I guess that's the question. Is Starbucks going to end up, especially in some of these urban areas, are they going to end up being essentially the world's largest corporate homeless shelter?
4: Yeah, just like the streetcar in Milwaukee.
0: Uh, thanks for call well that I mean that's going to be a whole other issue you know once you put the streetcar in and you can ride for free are they going to do anything to police? I have to tell you I, I I understand that maybe there's some people that are sitting around and drinking and sipping their lattes and patting their hands. I think in the real world this is going to turn out to be a disastrous policy for many many stores, particularly in the urban areas where you have a huge homeless population because now you're essentially saying, you know, come on in, hang out, sit in the chairs, use the bathroom, stay as long as you want. And, you know, what's that going to do to the customers who want to come in and sit and use the Wi-Fi or whatever? Just asking. Joe in Appleton. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
6: Hello. Huh. I have to rescind everything bad i said about Starbucks in the past. Finally, a corporation is standing up for taxpayers. We now have warming shelters for all the homeless. You can't discriminate.
0: This is a beautiful thing, Jeff. <laughs> um, all right, it's a beautiful. Yeah. Are, 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 do you have your tongue firmly planted in the cheek? Or are you serious? Tongue and cheek, just right? A smidgen. just
6: a smidgen.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, seriously, what is? I, I mean, I'm trying to imagine. Now, obviously, this isn't going to be an issue everywhere, but but what happens when you're trying to sell the guy? Like our last caller, Mike was saying, you know, you, you've got the people that want to run in and buy the the four dollar, you know, lattes. And you, you've got, you know, people that are just sitting there from the minute it opens up to the minute it closes because it, it's warm. I mean, what is that going to do to your business model?
6: Well, and it goes directly to what they were trying to accomplish by shutting all the stores down, right? They they want us to have sensitivity training and they want to be, you know, open-armed to all these, to everyone. Well, this is what they're opening their arms to, so and I hope right prepared for what they're ready
0: to do. Right, no, thank, thanks to the call. Right, it's it's one of these things that here we, we want to be touchy feely, we want to feel compassionate. Heaven forbid, we don't want to accuse, you know, get accused of racism or things like a racial profiling in this. But the truth is, I think this is a disastrous policy. I, we were Fran and I were in Key West a couple months ago. I love Key West, and you know Key West. I mean, it's a huge tourist town, right? So you got people walking up and down the streets, um, and I mean, I I will tell you, almost all of the outdoor restaurants and bars, I I, it, I don't know all, but but many many many, you know, they had signs up right on, prominently displayed saying, "Our restrooms are for our patrons," and, and the idea being you know, you have to have some sort of control of this. You know, you are, at the end of the day, you're a business, okay? And it costs you money to provide the restrooms and those facilities and things like that. And and you don't want your place to be overrun by people who just want to hang out in there and use the facilities for free. Because at the end of the day, if you don't sell coffee, you don't sell beer, you don't sell food or whatever it is you're selling, you're going to be out of luck. So this is... This is Starbucks being touchy and feely and being compassionate. I'm um, going to be curious as to how this all plays out. But our last caller, Joe, is absolutely right. You know, now Starbucks is stepping up. And essentially, you know, if you're looking for a warming shelter during the day, hang out as long as you want. Starbucks is the place. It's 245. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's two forty nine. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. the um, the The anti Trump hysteria, and, and look, and I, I've I've said this before. I understand that President Trump is a polarizing figure. I I get it. As somebody who thinks a lot of his policies have worked out well. I still cringe when I mean I was talking about this earlier. The Wall Street Journal is a great phrase. They, you know, they 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 talked about how he belly flopped into this whole issue involving whether an FBI informant was used to try to infiltrate his campaign, and and that's exactly way to describe a lot of the way he approaches stuff. He belly flops into it. I think he's you know he's he's got legitimate points, but you lose sight of it by the fact that. I, I don't know when you need a, a scalpel, he takes a shotgun and just, it's kind of this like blast into those types of things. But I, I think at the same time, you, you've got to recognize the economy is doing really, really well. Um, There is a chance and I'm not, I'm not naive about this. There's a chance that you know you might be moving closer towards peace in North in between North and South Korea. Wouldn't that be a great thing? And and, and so I, I think he deserves credit where credit is due. You've rolled back a lot of these I, I think blatantly illegal you know, Obama administration rules, he gets a lot of credit. But, of course, because there's some people out there that just can't hate, can't stand him, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him, him. you can't give the guy any sort of credit at all. And so we become polarized. And I understand he is a polarizing figure that kind of, you know, adds fuel to that fire. But at the same time, I'm just always amazed by some of the folks that suffer from Trump derangement syndrome and how they just can't get over it. Shania Twain, you remember who is the Canadian, what kind of country singer? Shania Twain makes headlines a couple months ago by, she's doing an interview. And she, you know, she's, she's talking about her, she, she's trying to promote her, her new tour. And she's doing an interview, I think it was somebody she's she's Canadian, so she can't even vote. And she's doing this interview with somebody I think in Great Britain and, and at the end of the interview um they, they ask her they they ask her about, hey, you know, who would you have voted for? Or something like that. And I don't know, she just she answers honestly. She says, Well, I, I'm Canadian, I, I can't vote, but but if I could, um I, I would have voted for for Trump because even though I, I thought he was offensive, he seemed honest. Do you want straight or polite? Uh, not that you shouldn't be able to have both. So she said, I would have voted for Trump. Oh my gosh and golly, it's like the world ends. The liberal elites go absolutely nuts. How dare she say that she would have voted for Trump? Don't you know, if, if you're a part of the entertainment industry, if you're one of the if you're one of the beautiful people, everybody would have voted for Hillary Clinton. You you just, you know, if, if you were Trump, I mean, who who would vote for Trump after all? And so there's this big cause celeb to the point that, you know, I think some of her tour managers get together and say, you know, we're trying to sell tickets here. Um, and it's OK if, if you're a, a loudmouth lefty entertainer. That is to be expected. But if you even hint that you might, you know, support Trump or be conservative, well, that's you just can't have that. So she comes back and says, "Look, I, I I'm sorry about this. I, I, I just I was caught off guard. Um, I regretted answering without giving the response more context." Whereas, of course, if she said I would have supported Hillary Clinton, of course nobody would have asked any follow up at all. But how dare she? I mean, she had the you know she just kind of answered off the top of her head and apparently honestly, and people end up getting outraged. Okay, so why am I revisiting the Shania Twain thing? All right, she performed in Chicago at the United Center on Saturday night. Apparently, great show. Apparently, people loved the show. Just wonderful, very entertaining. All right. Now, I bring this up because I have in my hands the review done by the predictably lefty critic from the Chicago Tribune. Here's the headline. Shania Twain dazzles at United Center despite shadow cast by Trump comments. Honest to God, half the story is about, oh, it was a great show, people loved it, tremendous, outstanding job. Half the story is about, well, the elephant in the room was what she said about Donald Trump, etc., etc., etc. Look, my guess is 95%, 98%, 99% of the people who went to see the show could give a rat's rump, About, you know, what she said to the, the Guardian newspaper in this interview. But of course, you've got, this is what happens when you've got the media elite and they're like dogs with bones. She said that she would have supported Trump. So we've got to revisit this. And this is the whole thing is written. It's an amazing piece all written from the perspective of how could she have said this? And, you know, she talks about inclusive and yet she supported Trump. It, it, if the media elite. Whether you're writing for newspapers or you're commentating on the radio or on television or whatever, and it's this this attitude of well, we've got to politicize everything, and if somebody has anything positive to say about Donald Trump, well, they they just you know we we can't ever let them go, you know, because we're better, we're smarter, we would have voted for Hillary Clinton. Well, you know, that's one of the things, and that's one of the attitudes that, frankly. Might get Donald Trump elected again. It's 255. We'll find out what John McCurran has on his mind. Stick around.